Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. We also try to give an insight into some of the personalities and characters who work tirelessly behind the scenes to keep sport running and ticking over globally. Our guest today is one of Japan's leading sports lawyers, Taku Yamazaki. He's been a guest on the podcast before, and we recorded this interview a couple of months ago now, or over a couple of months ago, when the pandemic was really taking hold. And we were focusing on, at the time, of the issues that arose around the postponement of the Olympic and Paralympic Games to next year, and what that meant for sport as a whole. Now, Tak is one of the people that I love talking to. He has such a broad perspective and expertise when it comes to sports globally and the key point of this discussion or the key thing that this anchors around really is the model that sport has adopted for the olympics and paralympics where it's could be more let's say inclusive rather than exclusive which it currently is whether that's from a commercial perspective but also from a structural perspective when we're looking at the diversity of board members when we're looking at the diversity of uh, executives in sport given the events that have been taking place all around the world with the black lives matter movement and 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 rightly so the questions that are being asked of sport now about how does it actually reform and be truly inclusive i think this is a very pertinent podcast i hope you enjoyed the interview as much as i do and remember if you like what we do if you like the podcast please do tell people about it share it on social media um you know share it with anyone you think would be of interest in it and also yeah, if there's any feedback that you have, we'd love to hear it. Other than that, thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. So our guest today is Taku Yamazaki, who's joining us, I believe now is the sixth time you're joining us. Uh, for the Law and Sport podcast. Tax one of the leading sports lawyers in Japan that many of you will know and probably doesn't need an introduction. But not only is he the founding partner of Field R, which is a specialist sports law firm in Japan, he is also a CAS arbitrator. He's also the chair of FIFA Pro Asia and uh, a leading academic in all things sports law, but works across the board with football players, baseball players, uh, rugby players, um, helping set up dispute resolution chambers, which was part of the podcast that we can link to for, for the last episode. When we last spoke, we talked at length around the work that you were doing in particular around human rights and the Olympic and Paralympic Games. It's fascinating insights into the work that you and the, the committee members were doing to try to address uh, issues of equality and inclusion at the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. Obviously, at that time, I think around nine months ago, no one saw uh, the COVID-19 epidemic coming. As one of the people I, I personally you know, come to a lot for advice and insights into how people are feeling, as much as what people know, but how people are feeling in different parts of the world, and particularly in Japan, other parts of Asia. I wondered if you could give an insight into how you saw things unfold as the ep- epidemic uh sort of hit worldwide and then uh, the announcement of the postponement of the games and what's that meant uh, what's that has meant uh for japan and tokyo 
Yeah. So um, uh, from a broader perspective, of course, uh, you know, uh, I'm really proud of uh, being involved in the Tokyo 2020. But at the same time, I have been feeling kind of a, a frustration uh, about what's uh, happening uh, surrounding the Olympics. So what I'm saying is that yeah, we are in a transition, uh, you know, from kind of a, you know, what, what I'm always saying is like, uh, you know, uh, from uh, 20th century uh, business model of Olympics uh, into the uh, the 21st business model. So um, uh, I'm always uh, using this type of, you know, kind of expressions to, uh, uh, you know, uh, explain the current situation. So, so uh, looking back at the uh, 1984 uh, LA Olympics, uh, which was led by the uh, huge economy by kind of exclusive uh, sponsorships or something like that. You know, now uh, we have already uh, transitioned to the, uh, the new world, uh, you know, where uh, respecting humans or human rights are important. Uh, to make uh, you know, huge branding or the uh, to um, you know in doing social good, it has already become a, you know essential part of a sports business. But uh, it's um, it hasn't really happened yet in Japan. So that's uh, you know kind of a big difference or the uh, that's the reality we have to face. Uh, however, um, the it has also uh, highlighted the importance or the uh, the reality uh, that the uh, you know, Japanese um, or the Tokyo Organizing Committee uh, was not really aware of the feelings of, you know, foreign people, uh, like Western people, for example. Uh, you know, so what this means is that, the, uh, you know, when uh, the media started uh, criticizing the IOC uh, regarding their decision uh, to stick to the um, uh, original schedule over Tokyo 2020, the Tokyo Organizing Committee couldn't, uh, you know, take a leadership. Uh, you know, in making a decision, they just uh, took it for granted that the uh, the Olympic will would happen as scheduled, right? So, but uh, you know, if you are you know really uh, sensitive in you know uh, understanding the feeling of people or the uh, the athletes uh, around the world, uh, the uh, organizing committee you know would have been able to think about uh, many other options, but uh, so, so, sorry, yeah. So you're saying then that essentially during when all this was um, in full force and people were um, in different parts of the world calling for the games to be postponed, you're saying that the organising committee were very focused on delivering the games and therefore didn't really take that into account. And that's just a different mindset right. of, we've committed to do this, we put a lot of money into doing it, we think we can get it done, this is what we're going to do, as opposed to, um, yeah, just having, I guess, being, being more sensitive to what was going on. That's really interesting. Is that, is that a very sort of typical response? Because we saw at the Rugby World Cup, or Rugby World Cup, sorry, the um, fantastic um, attitude the Japanese people were dealing with adversity um, as the storms, hit across Japan and that was something that post during and post World Cup games everyone uh praised in terms of just you know really just cracking on with it and, and making sure you were going to deliver a fantastic World Cup is that the same is that, is that is that the other side of it right it comes with the real positive aspects of it of being able to deal with these difficult situations and on the other side then uh, maybe lacking a little bit in sensitivity 
Absolutely. So, um, uh, you know, as you can see uh, in the what we worked about last year, uh, you know, uh, I can be proud of, uh, you know, level of people or, you know, civilization of people or the, uh, you know, hospitality of Japanese people. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, we are you know, such a homogeneous uh, people. So um, uh, we are not really good at understanding the feeling of others uh, or the other races or other uh, type of people. So uh, we have to you know, accept it or admit it. So, um, and also um, I think another keyword uh, I'd like to focus on is uh, decentralization, that the tendency of decentralization. So sports business has been led by the uh, uh, centralization, uh, kind of, you know, that type of business model. So, you know, uh, again, the, if you look at the uh, 1984 LA uh, Olympics, uh, you know, it was led by the uh, really centralized business model uh, based on exclusivity or the uh, uh, privilege, uh, special privilege for sponsors or broadcasters or something like that. But uh, uh, the society or the, or the world has already become, uh, you know, more and more diverse. And the, uh, we need to understand. So, so just, you know, saying uh, respecting the diversity is very easy. Thing. But, uh, uh, you know, we, we need to have our, you know, real feelings for, for you know, what's happening uh, around so, the world. So, so then, so you had this, 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 um, this viewpoint, then obviously there were discussions that took place with the IOC and there was agreement to postpone the games. What, how did that, how did that go down in Japan and particularly in Tokyo, given that we've all been quite aware of the huge expense uh hosting olympic games costs anyway in the paralympic games and there was reports of huge sums of monies uh having to be invested to be found to, to, to fund these developments to delay that already with a very expensive games um that must have been quite difficult i would imagine politically um to to actually you know um yeah to actually you know commit to doing mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, uh, uh, it also relates, relates the problem of, you know, uh, how democratic people are or how uh, centralized the government is. So if you look at the, the Japanese government, they are really kind of a uh, successful model in terms of a centralization. So, um, uh, you know, uh, good thing or bad thing uh, is that the, uh, the Japanese people are not really complaining about the situation. So they, they just follow it. <laughs> and the, uh, once the, the government made a decision for the Tokyo Olympic Committee made a decision, they support. And the, uh, of course, uh, uh, the many of the costs will be borne by uh, taxpayers, including myself. But uh, nobody is really complaining about it. So that's that's a problem uh, in yeah. terms of the, uh, the real democracy uh, of uh, Japanese people. So uh, yeah, but it, it might be a good thing, uh, you know, because um, uh, yeah, there is a solidarity or unity. But uh, we need, we, you know, uh, if if I can say, uh, you know, this is problem, uh, you know, Japanese people uh, have to understand the reality, uh, you know, the reality uh, in the foreign countries. So like, uh, if uh, same thing happens in the United States or European, Western European countries. Uh, many of the media or people will say that the you whole know, oh, who, who's going to bear the cost or the uh, who will take a responsibility or something like that. But uh, you know, uh, we have 
we don't have such feelings right now. So let's look at the 2021 uh, without mentioning the, uh, the cost associated with it or something like that. So let's you know, get together or something like that. That's the you know, general feeling over Japanese people. And what do you think then is the opportunity? Because we spoke a couple of weeks ago, hence why we're, we're doing this now. And I was fascinated by your insight into this in that you think there's a real opportunity here for the organizing committee, for the for everyone involved to really leverage this in a way that it otherwise wouldn't have. Did you, maybe you could explain that for those who are listening or, or watching. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I personally think that the, uh, we need to leverage this opportunity uh, to be more inclusive or the, uh, to uh, let uh, people working for uh, Tokyo 2020 understand the, you know, the importance of being inclusive to others. But the, uh, uh, since, you know, the, due to the fact that the, uh, the Olympic business model is, is kind of a, still is kind of a, centralized business model, uh, it's kind of an inconsistent to say that, you know, let's be you know, more inclusive or something mm-hmm. like that. So that's, uh, that's uh, my frustration uh, over the last uh, uh, three or four years uh, since I've been uh, involved in the... Uh, I got and you mean, that, sorry, sorry to, just to add some color to that, um, you mean that from every aspect, you mean that from the commercial sponsors perspective, from um you know cooperating with other groups from uh, an individual athlete perspective all the way down the chain you mean that in terms of that that mentality or the exclusivity rather than exclusivity given what you said on the previous podcast was is something that um yeah you said you said in the past has been frustrating you hope this would change that in terms of that inclusivity then if there was an opportunity here for there to be a more inclusive approach. How do you see that manifest itself? Mm. Yeah, the, yeah. I, of course, uh, you know, uh, before going any further, uh, I, I want to say that the, I, I know the difficulty uh, of this transition. Of course, uh, you, know, the, you know, the prosperity of uh, sports business has been led by the, uh, that type of, type of exclusive business model. So uh, uh, we can't really say that you know, we should change it, uh, you know, Today or you know, yeah, or within a within a week or within a year or something like that. But um, you know, as you can see, you know, uh, the movement led by FIFA or the movement led by many of the NGOs uh, in relation to the uh, human rights uh, movement. Uh, you know, uh, now uh, we have to understand the uh, the you know sensitivity, or we have to understand the background or the context of this movement. So. Um, uh, this the core philosophy of this movement is uh, to respect people or to respect individual people. And the uh, uh, I can say that the, the the tendency of this is led by the philosophy of uh, anti-commoditization. So um, I think the uh, anti-commoditization uh, is uh, uh, is kind of a difficult concept to understand, but uh, uh, you know. In 20th, 20th century, uh, you know, many of the economy has been uh, was, you know, uh, led by the uh, commoditization. And the uh, uh, if you look at the uh, European uh, football, uh, there are a lot of uh, commoditization, including selling players. So, yeah. uh, you know, there has been huge amount of transfer fee, uh, 
in sending the plates, you know, which is you know uh, kind of uh, not allowed uh, under the uh, the modern day or uh, you know labor uh, laws principles, but uh, uh, it actually happens. So uh, what I want to say here uh, is that the uh, so we are uh, in a transition process uh, to uh, decentralize world, and the uh, uh, it's been you know this um, uh, tendency or the transition. Uh, the reality of transition has been uh, highlighted uh, by the uh, this COVID-19 uh, mm. pandemic. So, um, uh, you know, every day uh, I receive a lot of calls from players or the uh, trade association all over the world. Uh, like, uh, you know, or we got the, uh, the, the letter or the, we got the uh, unit decision by clubs uh, saying that the uh, your salary will be reduced by 70%. From tomorrow or something like that. It's a really kind of a dehumanized approach, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but uh, many of the uh, uh, sports federations, leagues, clubs, or you know that type of management people uh, still take it for granted that the uh, uh, you know they can decide anything as they want. So it's really kind of a dehumanized uh, you know, approach. But uh, yeah, so and it seems we, so, yeah, I was going to so say it's, it's fascinating. To, to watch this play out because I understand and we've talked about this on webinars that we've done on the topic I understand people mm -hmm. under huge amounts of pressure at the moment and therefore they may not make the best decisions you know I think that's understandable um, however given that sport plays off this social capital of being uh, you know positive influence educationally wise uh, physically uh, for society generally that if people practice what they preach in the sense of that if the if you're a football club and you're meant to have like the community then it's really going to be fascinating to look back in a year's time to see how people conducted themselves and maybe they'll be judged on um that from either from a legal perspective in terms of how much autonomy they have but also contractually you know and i think there was um the head of uh, global sponsorship for coca-cola wrote a fantastic update on linkedin on this point, making this point, going, you know, it's about relationships. Remember, you've got to, you want to have these relationships after the COVID-19 um, team's uh, long gone. And therefore, you should bear that in mind when you're making uh, decisions. And sometimes it's good to talk rather than just send a letter out. Um, so I think, yeah, this could be really interesting to, to, to see how that plays out. So in terms of then, um, what would you like to see happen, I guess, is the better way to phrase it. Yeah. You know, in, yeah. in your ideal world, what would you like to see happening? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, we need to look at the uh, two different type of approach. One is the uh, bottom-up approach. Uh, the, the other is top-down approach. And again, the uh, under the uh, 20th uh, century uh, business model uh, of the Olympics or mega sports event, you know, we can say that the, uh, the core uh, approach uh, behind it is, uh, you know, top-down approach. But, uh, uh, we need to make innovations uh, under the uh, uh, by the uh, bottom up approach. So uh, then, uh, you know, so uh, when we talk about, you know, for example, blockchain or that type of democratic, uh, you know, innovative tools, uh, the core concept of uh, blockchain, for example, is a um, uh, bottom up approach or the, you know, yeah. more democratic approach. So people have to be centered uh, to make a decision or to build up something. And the, uh, uh, in terms of this, uh, the true asset of sports business is engagement, uh, especially fun engagement. 
So um, uh, now it's a really good opportunity for us to understand the importance of fund engagement. So fund engagement is a true asset of a sports business. So um, uh, you know, uh, once you know we have this type of you know kind of a, you know natural disaster or the, in this type of pandemic, we tend to think about you know oh uh, how can we uh, earn money or how can uh, we uh, get the support fund or something like that. But uh, uh, you know of course that is important, but that at the same time uh, we also need to understand or need to think about the very innovative way uh, to uh, you know monetize uh, the yeah. our true asset. The, and the our true asset is uh, fund engagement. So um, so if we uh, think about it in, in a in a way like that, uh, then the next question will be, you know, uh, is it absolutely necessary for, for example, MLB players to play 162 games in a year? Or is it absolutely necessary for uh, Korean player Song Kun Min uh, to play more than 70 matches uh, in a year? It is absolutely, you know, kind of a, No, I agree uh, with you on this. Crazy, it's crazy, right? So, yeah. It seems yeah. like, it does seem like there was a point where, when I say this, you know, people are talking about the valuation of sports rights. And I was saying, it seemed to me there's a very bullish approach anyway, in terms of if you're looking at the market, how the market was feeling. And it seemed to me, whether it was a valuation of OTT platforms, whether it was sports betting rights, whatever, whatever it was, it seemed to me that there are very aggressive uh, sort of valuations there. And therefore, as it was driving, that sort of fed in a very, um, how do I say, commercially aggressive approach which means you don't have that, you're always pushing it to the edge. And so maybe you don't have the tolerance that you would otherwise have. And I think you're right. I think particularly with that, that volume of games and how much people can actually consume, maybe people have some time to actually uh, have a look at this and say, fine, if it is 160 games and that's the way that economically it works out, then fine. But if not, uh, maybe we could revise it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I want to, yeah, you know, just um, uh, to avoid the misunderstanding. So I, I want to respect the decision or the, uh, the tendency uh, led by the, uh, the sports governing bodies. Of course, uh, you know, uh, playing 162 games is, uh, you know, one of the ways to monetize uh, the asset, but it's not the only way. So, um, yeah, so we need to be really innovative in uh, monetizing our true asset. So just playing 162 games uh, is is not a solution. It's not the you know the only solution. Uh, so we need to be really flexible in thinking about the uh, uh, you know how to monetize uh, in a best possible possible way. Yeah. So in terms of this, uh, I think the you know so uh, I gave an example of blockchain, but you know it's just an example. So that type of uh, uh, innovative technology uh, can be a really good, great tool to uh, think about the uh, how we can monetize the two, you know, asset uh, which we have right now. So we uh, haven't really been aware of our two assets, you know, just playing the game. You know, we we took it for granted that the uh, you know, uh, you know, playing many more games would create, uh, you know, the most value. And the uh, would create yet yeah, it would it would be the, uh, the best possible way to monetize the asset, but uh, it's not the only way actually. So so now you know uh, I'm kind of really positive uh, in thinking about or to be more innovative in thinking about the uh, you know uh, 
the best possible way to monetize our own path. And, and so within that, I know that, you know, I keep going back to it because we had such a great call when we just caught up last week about this. So I'm just trying to, for those that obviously no one else heard the conversation, but just put it into perspective. When you're saying about this, you know, understanding the true asset is, is engagement. You were saying this again, when it ties into where does the value of sport uh, come back to, um, it comes back to the, um, so I can hear my screaming one-year-old in the background. This is the COVID-19 office. <laughs> um, so apologies if you're picking that up. I'm not sure if you are picking that up in the background. Um, the um, uh, the relationship between the engagement, but is also the ties into the, the education, the social um, impact, social capital, etc. And so at the moment, the, the big drivers has been this commercial gain, commercial gain, commercial gain, because it's such a competitive environment and looking to invest. Whereas actually, if you take a slightly different lens and say, oh, actually, we've got these assets. So in the UK in particular, the football clubs and their community trusts have been doing fantastic work. Some of them have been doing some fantastic work, like many other sports organizations around the world. I thought, and I said this to you last week, so Stefan um, Curry did a fantastic, uh, took over the NBA YouTube channel, Instagram, et cetera, and, and had the uh, one of the leading experts in the US talk about the COVID-19, what it meant, why people should stay indoors, et cetera, which again was a, was a fantastic example of leveraging that fan engagement point. I know there's been ones in the UK, I'm just using that as one example, there's been others around the world, but I thought that was a great example. So when you talk about it in that term, you're not just talking about it as a, as a usual fan engagement, you know, uh a transactional you're talking about it more in a in a true meaningful relationship way absolutely yeah so that's my point and the uh so the but the, uh i think that it was really difficult for us to think about the, the true asset or the you know meaningful a way of engagement but uh, yeah because um we were so busy in you know playing many games or you know you know just doing the daily routines or you know uh, a lot of stuff but uh, now it's a really good time. It's a, it's a really you know, great opportunity to think about you know, you know the, the the most sustainable way to you know keep this industry. Mm. So, just, so, you know, so what does the, that mean? What does that mean then for, for Tokyo? Given that there's probably going to be a huge, you would think a huge financial deficit there um, potentially. How do you see how how would you see that? Would you see there being more sort of partnerships between the athletes. I know there was relaxation of rule in various parts of the world, and obviously the IOC relaxed rule 40. Do you see there being you know, some of the commercial sponsors who are tier one, tier two? You know, are they? Do you think they will take a more? Do you think it's going to take this more collaborative approach to try to reap back some of the um, losses that are there? Yeah, I cannot be really optimistic about it. Uh, you know, <laughs> based on my experience of working for Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee as well as the IOC. But uh, we need to make it happen. That's my opinion. So um, uh, I'm always saying that the ambush marketing is uh, one of the best ways to, uh, you know, uh, think about the uh, better fund engagement, right? So. Uh, of course, uh, uh, in sports industry, ambush marketing is a, is a bad thing, you know. And, and, uh, of course, I agree with you. But, uh, uh, you know, ambush marketing is, has been really kind of innovative way to, you know, make a, a you know, good, fund, good way of fund engagement. So, um, 
I, as a sportsman uh, specialist, uh, has been saying, have been saying that the uh, oh, uh, let's um, uh, you know continue the good uh, doing the good ambush uh, marketing because um, it is absolutely beneficial to uh, sports industry as a whole. So um, and also um, uh, in the sense, yeah, the said, yeah. Sorry, Zach, yeah. just to clarify that. In the sense that obviously. Some people would, you know, when we talk about ambush marketing, it's a broad concept and term. And sometimes people refer to ambush marketing and really what they're talking about is someone just being very innovative uh, without infringing any intellectual property rights, but just thinking Absolutely. about how to raise, raise awareness. Um, just because I know some people would listen to that and think, well, that doesn't, <laughs> for someone in the sports sector, you, they would think that you'd probably be anti-ambush marketing. But I think that's a, such a broad term. Uh, sometimes it's unhelpful. It's only on the main terms we use, but it's unhelpful. Um, oh, that's really yeah, interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd like. Uh, I'd like to, you know, even encourage ambushers to, you know, make more uh, innovative uh, projects. So, you know, just uh, given an example, one of the um, uh, official sponsors of the Tokyo 2020, uh, you know, uh, said to me that the uh, oh, we have absolutely no plan. <laughs> you know to activate uh, wow. the sponsorship, and the um, so uh, and it's um, uh, it's absolutely true uh, for many of the uh, uh, official sponsors of Tokyo 2020. They they were just asked to become a sponsor uh, by someone. Right. <laughs> I mean the government or you know the you know established yeah. people or whatever. But uh, you know they don't know what to do. They don't know what how to activate their sponsorship. Or, you know, they they don't know uh, how can be how can uh, how they can uh, benefit from the sponsorship. So that's the reality. So ambitious are you know generally more innovative or creative in yeah. thinking about the activation of sports. Yeah. Can you think at this moment in time? I know that the UK sport are doing some stuff. Uh, many others are. And I see saw some <laughs> really cool clip. On the Olympic Channel, on on the um, on my YouTube feed, was when the gymnast doing an indoor backflip, and uh, I was wondering if he was going to hit his head on the ceiling, but he did took his jumper off while doing it. It's very impressive. But if the objective of the sponsors is not only to raise brand awareness, but to create more engagement and affinity towards their brands, anyway, you think that a time of crisis is the ideal opportunity to do that, to do something where. You know, in my view, they should be sitting there, and that's all they should be thinking about at this moment in time. Is like, how can we add value to other people? And that would be the thing, Absolutely. right? If they could say, how can we, how can we use this opportunity to get the audience to show people that we actually do care? And if they do that, by the time the games comes around, they'll be, in theory, you see, if their objective was to, I don't know, penetrate certain markets, increase increase their market share, etc., they'd be more that probably be more likely to happen if they actually do that. So. I'm surprised and disappointed to hear that, and I hope that they, uh, um, or maybe they're doing things in other ways. Maybe they're just not using the Olympics as the as a mechanism to do it. If you see what I mean at the moment, because there's other um, very yeah. pressing issues that they're, they're probably addressing. Yeah, that's why I'm saying that the uh, you know uh, centralization versus decentralization is kind of a key word, and, and of course, uh, uh, you know. Uh, I know the frustration of uh, official sponsors over the 2020, uh, you know, uh, against the, uh, the uh, possible uh, ambush marketing. But, uh, you know, uh, if they found uh, ambush marketing, 
you know, they, it's a, a, they should think like, a, you know, it's a really good way to, you know, look uh, at themselves, uh, look, at their, uh, look at their own uh, branding strategy, uh, whether it is uh, working or not. And they, uh, then, uh, you know, if uh, they found, uh, you know, uh, ambush, uh, ambush marketing, uh, uh, certain ambush marketing are really, you know, better uh, than uh, themselves, then uh, they can, you know, improve themselves or like, uh, you know, oh, this is really interesting, but, uh, you know, we will do more interesting things than yours. Than yours. That, that's the best way to, you know, uh, you know, improve the quality of a sponsorship or uh, mega sports event. And, and what's happening in terms of, you know, in other parts of the world, there's a lot of conversations around force majeure clauses and frustration and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Respecting people's rights. Obviously, the you know, FIFA have made their, um, published their guidelines in which they're encouraging people to enter dialogues um, in terms of extending seasons and contracts. Um, very sort of almost mediation type approach really to deal with the situation. From a Japanese perspective, what's the approach in terms of, um, you know, delayed seasons, started um, extensions of seasons? Um, what's the approach with the athletes, with the sponsor, with their sponsors and agents currently? Is it always just in a state of yes. flux like everyone else? Yeah. Um, well, we have about four um, professional players association, so baseball, football, rugby, and basketball, and the, of course, uh, some of the, uh, the the management people have already started talking about the uh, possible salary reduction or something like that. But uh, uh, the discussion has just been just been started, so not uh, we haven't uh, reached the, uh, the conclusion. But uh, you know, at the same time, uh, as I said, the fund engagement under these circumstances is very important. So that is why a Japanese Baseball Players Association has started the charity activities to support, uh, you know, uh, you know, medical or hospital, uh, you know, the, those who are engaging with the uh, uh, helping uh, people, uh, the the patients of COVID nineteen. So um, that type of uh, variable activities has to be central, rather than just focusing on the uh, how to you know uh, share the burden or how to share the, uh, the damage uh, in, in the industry of course uh, we need to talk about it i i fully understand we need to talk about it but uh, uh, you know at the same time we also need to uh, think about uh, what we can uh, how we can add value to the societies so and the, uh, that's the, that will show that the uh, sports uh, industry uh, has um, has a value uh, in the, uh, the society, and once we succeed in proving the fact that the, uh, uh, this is a really valuable asset uh, in our society, then uh, the money will follow. So we need to do uh, that type of thing first, rather than you know. So yeah. you know, the, I, yeah. I I got you know kind of fed up with the a uh, lot of the discussions about the. Uh, <laughs> I think most people do nowadays. People or something like that, but uh, you know, uh, you know, we should make it. We should, of course, uh, you know. Uh, it's not really easy, but uh, uh, you know we, we should think about you know, what we can do uh, under this environment. So and that's the the most uh, uh, enjoyable way <laughs> you know, yeah. to you know live our life. Uh, so. Well, we talked about this again last week when you know from a law and sport perspective, when we obviously went on lockdown, we were, we we went a bit earlier than than was our government advised. 
Um, and the first week was really wondering what the hell we were doing because you just felt so insignificant, given that all these people on the front line, whether they're in, you know, the workers in shops or or taxi drivers, bus drivers, etc., all the public servants, basically, um, the police, fire brigade, the, obviously, the, in our case, the NHS. And you kind of felt that this is a bit ridiculous. And then you, we stopped and thought back and said, right, well, how can we help? And that's when we started to do more COVID-19 focused stuff to try, you know, to do what we do well, provide some clarity for people and some direction. Um, and that, that that then did make us feel like we were actually contributing something useful and that actually this is where we can be beneficial to people because hopefully it can mean more people will have jobs at the end of it. People come up to the best decision. The sports sector will you know, do our little bit to help. Um, so, so I agree with that fundamentally. Um, yeah, and also, Sean, Andy, and this is a really important point. So um, uh, no players want to be really egoistic, uh, you know, keeping the salary as it is. So, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, or most of the players, uh, I would say uh, all of the players, uh, want to support uh, the clubs or the management. So um, uh, we are the partners and the, uh, uh, we need to help each other uh, under this, uh, uh, you know, challenging circumstances. I think yeah, that, uh, that kind of a message should be shared uh, with many uh, people. So um, the, I think the trust is very important. And the, um, the, the problems uh, which tend to happen under this environment is a unilateral decision made by the management uh, without informing or without disclosing any uh, financial figures or you know, actual damages which they suffer uh, from this pandemic. They just you know, got frustrated and the management, you know, really the decision that, you know, like, uh, you know, oh, your salary will be reduced or something yeah. like that. But uh, we as a stakeholders have to be, you know, really uh, involved in a decision-making process. And once we are involved in the decision-making process, they will, or, you know, the players will understand, absolutely. And the, um, I think that that type of approach is absolutely needed, and that is why FIFA has been encouraging the collective bargaining at the national level. And I think you're right. And I'll be, like I said again, I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens at the end of all of this with uh, when we look at governance, good standard governance, transparency, decision making processes, et cetera, within sports organizations where there's been a lot of distraction around rather trivial things at times. Um, right. You know, everyone gets caught into, yeah, um, as people negotiate on various points, but the fundamental points you know, uh, have often been overlooked. And I think it's going to be really, really interesting because I think we'll see almost night and day between those who had things running uh, properly, let's say, and those things that are either distracted on doing other things or, or very, let's say, I don't say it's old-fashioned, but they say maybe outdated um, or hadn't been kept up to speed and or they, it got ahead of them. And I'm very sympathetic to that because, you know, I know how busy everyone is. Know that these things, you know, particularly in sport, with all the passion and the, all the, yeah, the, the commentary, it can be difficult to stay on top of things. But at the same time, there's a your job as a leader or as a as an executive is to focus down and narrow down. There's been a lot of talk about this, so yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting to see. But I also think there'll be some how sport is financed. I think will yeah, be, again, I'll be fascinated to see how that um, you know pans out. You know what assets are sold off, what what are not, which are which are remain, um, etc. Um, well, Tack, thanks so much for your time. Uh, before we go, I always give you the final word on this. Is there any um, sort of final words 
that you'd like to add or anything, uh, you know, any other observations at this moment in time? Yeah, so the keyword is again the uh, decentralization versus centralization. And the uh, many people or many management people in the sports industry are, you know, are still sticking to the uh, centralized business model. But uh, we are living the new normal or new world uh, where decentralization or democratic, uh, more democratic uh, way of thinking is very, very important. So uh, uh, in terms of this, I'm uh, really optimistic or positive uh, in thinking about the new way of monetizing our assets or a uh, new way of engaging with uh, people or fans. Uh, Brilliant. I'm hopeful yeah. too. Um, it's going to be really <laughs> interesting to see what's happened. Well, stay safe, stay well. Thanks for taking the time out to speak. Um, no doubt we'll speak in a few weeks' time. I'm pretty confident of that on one thing or another um, to stay updated because it can be such a fast-changing um, environment nowadays. But um, thanks so much for taking the time out to tune in. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening and watching. Thank you, Sean.